This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. To, ...to instruct us how, we, how Christ can enable us to live through that kind of stress, to live through suffering for the sake of our faith, for the sake of His name, and how to respond properly to all relationships in the midst of, of that. <clears throat> and the beginning, I said last week, is very densely packed with all these rich and profound terms, and so we're, we're taking our, our time. And this morning, I'll just read verses 1 and 2. So First Peter, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in or by the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Indeed, may grace and peace from the Lord be multiplied to every one of you in the hearing of his word. Let's ask for his blessing one more time. Our God and Father, we come before you, Lord, in utter dependence of your grace and mercy. By the power of your spirit, Lord, help us to understand more deeply the, the work of your Son and the work that you, the, the Holy Trinity, are doing in the world and in your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Identity. There's a lot of discussion today regarding one's self-identity. I think most of you are aware of that. Identity, very briefly, simply put, answers the question, who are you? And the answer to that question leads immediately to, what are you here for? Who are you? That's identity, simply put. And what I hope you will hear again today is that, biblically speaking, a Christian's identity is found in what God has made you to be. We are speaking from the Scriptures from a Christian worldview. Your identity is that one which God has given to you. Now, identity is actually a theme that runs throughout the entire biblical narrative, though the word itself may not be used like that. It all begins in creation. God made humanity in the image of God. That is identity. And then humanity fell into sin, and as a result, we became worshipers of the creation, not the Creator. And then there is our redemption in Christ, and in Christ, whoever's in Christ is a new creation. That's your identity this morning, but it doesn't stop there, because Scripture goes on to say that when Christ appears, we will be made like him because we'll see him as he is. And that's also part of your identity, which right now is the hope of that. But one day it will be fully realized. So Peter, I think, by the way he begins so immediately with such deep and profound words, elect exiles, he is showing just by the way he's writing his readers and us that Knowing your identity in Christ is tremendously important because that is going to be a theme he's going to expound upon. Knowing our identity in Christ helps us live for Christ in the midst of the exilic experience that we have. We are exiles, as he says. We are sojourners on the earth. And therefore, you will never fully belong in this place in this age, at this time, 
you will be to some degree spiritually out of place, no matter when you live or, or where it is you live if you're a Christian. And why is that? He told us because we're citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God. And as a result, that means we're exiles. We said last week the closest idea is resident aliens. We're exiles on the earth. And what Peter is doing in a very subtle way is he is taking that part of the identity of the people of God, of Israel, and he applies it to the new covenant people of God. We have received not only the blessings of belonging to the people of God, but we are also experiencing the exilic existence of the people of God. And Peter does that in some subtle ways. Like, for example, the way he finishes his letter. If you look at verse 13, I only alluded to it briefly last week. Right as he draws to a close in chapter 5, 13, Peter says this. He says, she who is at Babylon, she is a reference to the church. She who's at Babylon, and Babylon at this point had become a cipher or a code word for Rome for the Roman Empire. And why is that? Because Babylon was not only a historical place, but it, it was a, a term that had tremendous theological significance. It came to symbolize the evil oppressor of the people of God. It came to symbolize a place of exile, a place of alienation, the enemy of God's people. And so Peter, in a subtle way, takes that term Babylon and he applies it to the church that's there at Rome. He says, we are in this exilic experience even when we're here in Rome. Christians, therefore, have taken on the identity of the people of God and not only its blessings but also its difficulties in exile. And as the people of God, just as Israel was called, <clears throat> on one level, to live different lives, we're called to live holy lives. And Peter will stress that in chapter 2. You remember his favorite word, anastrophe, one of his favorite words, uh, way of life. Your conduct on this earth is going to be different from the surrounding world. Remember that, because we are aliens. We have different commitments. Our values, that is what we prize, our our ethics, what we think is wrong and right. Our worldview, how we explain, uh, how we answer life's biggest questions. All of that is going to be different, you see. And as a result, our anastrophe, our way of life is going to be different. And Peter says this is part of where the pressure comes from and is going to be coming from. That's why you feel like a stranger in a strange land. And because of this, they malign you, you see. That's why they speak evil of you. And what Peter is stressing in the book, and I'm stressing you this morning, is that all this is normal. It's actually exactly the way it's supposed to be. Peter's only echoing, amplifying the words of the Lord himself. Right? If they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecute you, remember, they persecuted me. You are not of this world, for I've taken you out of the world. That's why the world doesn't love you, but hates you in that sense. Paul the Apostle, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And Peter is stressing that here in his book over and over again. Chapter 2, the middle of verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, for to this you've been called. You've been called to live holy lives and maybe have to suffer for it because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Chapter 4, in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial or ordeal when it comes upon you, when it comes upon you, because it will, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You hear how he's saying, it's normal. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So 
This is normal, what Peter is saying. And it's something that we need to wrap our, our heads around as the, the institutions of our culture, once again, are becoming less and less committed to a Judeo-Christian worldview. And how is it that, how is it that these non-Jewish Gentile peoples, pagans from all these districts there of what we call today northern Turkey, how is it that they now share the identity of the people of God? How is it then that they or you became these exiles on earth? It's all fine on that word right before it, elect exiles. You are God's chosen exiles. That's how it all that's how it all got started. This is all the doing of God. And we began to look at that word last week. And Peter here is touching on identity again. He's expanding it. He's saying you're exiles, yes, but you're also, here's part of your, your identity. You're God's chosen, beloved exiles. And so I say again, Christian identity is not defined in terms, terms of who we are in and of ourselves. We don't find it looking inwardly per se. It's defined in these terms. Christian identity is it, it, defined in, in the terms of what God has done for us, uh, the relationship He creates with us, and the destiny He has secured and appoints for us. Our Christian identity is found in that. What God has done for us, what uh, the relationship God creates with us, and the destiny God has appointed for us. Christian identity is therefore thoroughly um, God-centered. And Peter will expand on identity right here. He's just talking about being elect exiles, but he begins right away on their, on their identity. He will expand on it over and over. Chapter 2, verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. If that's what you are, what are you here for? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So identity will play a big part in this book. But right at the beginning, he begins with this idea that you are elect exiles. Christians, you need to know that. You need to remember, you are elect exiles. You are what God has made you, and that is in part what God has made you. Now, verse 2, which we didn't <clears throat> go in much last week, verse 2, you know, contains three prepositional phrases, and I take them all, each of them, to modify elect exiles. Uh, the... You, we are elect exiles. The first one is the basis. On what basis? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are elect exiles. Uh, through what means did we become elect ex exiles? In or by the sanctification of the Spirit. The purpose of our being elect exiles. Why are we elect exiles? Uh, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So you have there these Three profound truths, uh, using big, important Bible words in there. Foreknowledge, sanctification, sprinkling with His blood, obedience, right? These three truths that are true about every Christian. But I want you to also see the three persons that are involved in you being who you are. You are, and I am what we are in Christ because of the Father's foreknowledge, because of the Spirit's sanctification, because of the Son's sprinkling or covering with His blood. The Trinity, the eternal, holy Trinity is thoroughly involved in unison in making you what you are and what you're going to be for eternity. You belong to the Father, you belong to the Son, you belong to the Spirit. It's amazing how Peter begins. And why start with such, such um, I guess we would say, just deep truth so quickly? Well, I think in part of it, beloved, is this, that I find that nothing is more effective in sustaining hope than, than knowing the glorious nature of all salvation. 
And for me, nothing promotes uh, godly humility and squashes my human pride more than knowing the nature uh, of my, uh, my salvation as being the result of God's sovereign grace alone. And for me, nothing also inflames the heart with worship than the times that I'm convinced that I was utterly lost and God on a rescue mission delivered me by his sovereign loving grace, you see. And so we have a glorious salvation. It includes these wonderful truths that Peter wants to immediately impress upon his readers who are suffering, and it's the result of the activity of these three eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's look at each one of those, uh, of those aspects of our being elect exiles. <clears throat> First of all, the basis. On what basis are you and I, along with them, elect exiles? We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now this touches upon the doctrine of election that we talked about last week. <clears throat> now the term foreknowledge uh, in the Greek is it, almost exactly like this English word we use called, that's, that's pronounced this way, prognosis. There it is, prognosis. Now this Greek term prognosis could simply mean that God foresaw, foreknowledge, that he foresaw whom would be his elect or whom uh, would believe in him. Now everyone agrees that it includes that. Why? Because God knows everything. So it has to include that. Foreknowledge has to include the idea that God foresees everything and foresees everyone and everyone's activities. But when the Bible discusses foreknowledge in relation to our salvation, foreknowledge means much more than advanced information. <laughs> it means much more than that. Beginning with just the root word, to know. The term to know in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, when it's used of God in relation to people, not just events, but people, it refers to much more than this cognitive knowledge or information. It means to know someone intimately. To know someone intimately refers to God's having placed his covenantal love upon someone for example, Amos 3.2, the prophet speaking for the Lord says to the people, you only have I known from all the families of the earth. Well, God knows all the families of the earth. <laughs> so in what sense has he only known them? Well, in the sense that he has loved them, known them with this intimate covenant love. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, the calling of of Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Well, God knows everything, and he knows everyone, so why would that be special to him? Because to know him is to place his love on him. He goes on to says, Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So before Jeremiah was ever born in time and space and ever did anything right or wrong, God already knew him in a way different than he knows others. He loved him. He consecrated him. There is the knowledge of God. And then even in the New Testament, we have, for example, the testimony of Paul. He makes this interesting statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. Paul says, if anyone loves God, he has been known by God. Well, God knows everyone. There we are again. He knows everything. So why is it these people love God? Because to know, be known by God is to be loved by God. In that way, known in that way. So it's like the Apostle John says, well, we love him because he first loved us. And Paul says, if anyone loves God, he has been known by God. So that is the meaning uh, of know when it's used in relation to people from the perspective of God's activity. And then we have to foreknow. It, it means to forelove. Paul uses the term in, in Romans 11, 
Romans 11, uh, verse 2, he says, he's reflecting on the fact that God's now saving Gentiles, and there's only a remnant, a small number of Jews being saved, and, and so he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Well, again, uh, he, he, he knows everything in advance as well. And notice that to foreknow is uh, contrasted to rejected. So in that contrast, he's not rejected them. Uh, why? Because he foreknew them, you see. And so there's more than knowledge ahead, more than advance info. It's to forelove. Uh, then to for no is also used by Peter not only in, in right here in the opening but Peter will use that term again in chapter 1 uh, a bit later he'll use it here in uh, in regards to Christ who he says was a lamb without blemish verse 20 he that is Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So this foreknow simply means that God had advanced information? Absolutely not. He knew the Son in eternity. He knew Him in intimacy. Uh, he was sent into the world. In the fullness of time, uh, He came into this world. It's not simply that He knew about, but that He knew Him as the one who would be sent since before the foundation of the world. And you know, foreknow is often also paired with another big uh, biblical term and that is the term predestination predestination is the larger umbrella term God's predestination refers to what we read from Ephesians 1 that God that God has foreordained and works all things according to the counsel of his will God has predestined all things that are taking place Election is one of the elements of what he has predestined. He, he has chosen some to e eternal life. And sometimes this foreknowledge term is used very closely or in proximity to predestination, which is clearly more than advanced knowledge. It's advanced planning, <laughs> advanced arrangement. So we heard that from Ephesians chapter 1. We, we read that together, another well-known and renowned place where these, where the concept of foreknowledge and predestination are closely tied together is in Romans 8, 29. And most of you are familiar with that. Let me begin at verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined uh, to be conformed to the image of his son. Foreknowledge there, again, closely tied to predestination. And the foreknowledge is not just advanced knowledge. He's saying God's always been working good for those who love him. And those who love him are the ones that he foreloved. You see, he's predestined them to be adopted. And then he's called them and justified them. And one day he will glorify them. And so these concepts are tied together in Scripture very, very closely. Maybe one last text for you. 2 Timothy 1.9 speaks of our salvation. Paul writes, he says, uh, that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. His planning, his purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus, when? Before the ages even began, you see. And so to know in that way is to, is to have an intimate knowledge of people based on his covenant love for them. To foreknow them is to have placed his love upon them before the foundation of the world. To be chosen, to be an elect exile, and therefore means... Uh, that God chose you as an act of his absolutely free, unconditional love before the foundations of the world. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, I know that uh, not, not, not all of you come from uh, churches that have a strong commitment to 
this sort of, of doctrine, let's say. And I've said to you before that, even as I said last week, that there are very sincere Christians that disagree to some degree with what I said. Everyone believes in election because you can't run away from it. It's all over the Bible, right? I chose you. Uh, you've been chosen, etc. Everyone believes in election. Not everyone agrees on how it takes place. But I am presenting to you not just my conviction, but, what it, but the convictions of the historic church that believe that God alone sa- saves. He slaves on the authority of Scripture alone, uh, based on grace alone, which began before the foundations of the world through faith alone which is his gift in the work of Christ alone uh, all to his glory alone why because salvation belongs to the Lord the scripture says from beginning to end that's the conviction of our church I know some would say well it seems like it seems like God's being unfair that he that he's choosing some and, 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 and not others. Beloved, God is not under obligation to save anyone. We, we've all sinned. We, we all fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's not one who understands, says Scripture. No one can come to me unless the Father first draws him, says the Lord Jesus. And so the truth is that there's nothing unfair at all about God. He's not unbl- He's not obligated to save anyone, but in, in his love and grace and in his divine will, he has chosen a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue based not on anything in them, no virtue, no faith, no deeds, no religious acts, but based solely upon what? His sovereign love and grace. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. I know some of you have embraced that doctrine for a long time, but I remind you it's not, it's not some abstract thing to wave in front of people. It's not some theology to beat people up with in some, some, some way or some sort of, of action like that. For, for us, what is it? It's that which gives us that deep sense of assurance because it w- your salvation was never based on anything God ever foresaw in you, any virtue or anything you did, and you're his strictly because of his love. You know what that means? You will always be his. You will never not be his, and which is why Peter can speak of a great inheritance that's being kept for you, you who are being guarded by him, <laughs> and kept for that great inheritance. We sing this over and over. He will hold me fast. And that's the, that's the essence of it. And so I hope you see that, beloved, and think about it in, in, in that light. Um, Peter reminds them then, and he reminds us, that it's because of God's eternal love and his, his sovereign choice and election that for love that we are what we are in Christ Jesus. You belong to the Father, and that's why you suffer. And that's why you're in exile, because you're not home yet. You're a resident alien here on the earth. But regardless of how bad your circumstances may ever become on this, in this place, in this life, he will never, never, ever forsake you. He is with you. You're his. You belong to him. So that's designed then again to do what? To squash our pride and to humble us and to inflame our hearts with worship, with adoration. Apart from the grace of God, there go I. Amen? That's what this teaching, this doctrine's aimed to do, is designed to do that. You notice how Paul started the section I, that we read together from Ephesians chapter 1? Right before he goes in, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world and predestined us to adoption. How did he begin? He began this way. Verse 3, blessed be, blessed be the Lord, the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you see. His heart's in flame with worship. He doesn't begin, how, how strange is this? How weird is that? How unfair would this be? He begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because Paul knows that he was a man hell-bent on persecuting the name of Jesus and was utterly undeserving, walking in darkness and sin, and grace reached down from heaven and pulled him up. And why is that? Because he chose him before the foundations of the world to be who he is. The same is true about you. So why are you in an exile, an elect exile? What's the basis of it? The forelove of God the Father. How is it that it came about that you came from being someone who was living for yourself or in the darkness or like these first readers, pagans, uh, worshiping in pagan temples and making pagan sacrifices? How is it that you be entered into a life here as one of God's chosen exiles? That's the second uh, prepositional phrase. Uh, the ESV translates it in the sanctification of the, the Spirit. And that little preposition there, in, is probably better translated here, by, because it, it's referring to the instrumentality. By, by the sanctification of the Spirit. Mm. I remind you that to, to, to sanctify means to set something apart, to consecrate something or someone for exclusive use, a special use or purpose. In the Old Testament, the term to sanctify was used of the people of Israel. God consecrated them from out of all the nations. He set them apart. He sanctified them to himself. He was to be their God. Uh, the the tabernacle was sanctified, consecrated, set apart for worship alone. The, the utensils in the tabernacle were, quote, sanctified. They didn't become any more holy because they didn't change. They're inanimate objects. But how were they sanctified? Because they were set apart solely for worship. When we come to the New Testament, the term is used primarily to speak of a, an act of God, a, a component of our salvation, the moment of conversion. We are sanctified. We are set apart. Not only are we justified, not only are we forgiven, not only are we adopted at that moment of conversion, but we are also set apart by God. Sanctified, we're told here, by the Holy Spirit. Second uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 in verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Apostle Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. There's the first part. He chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. And how did the Spirit do it? How did He sanctify us? In, by belief in the truth, or and belief in the truth. That's the moment, that's the instrument the Spirit used. To this He called you through our gospel. That's the truth. So that, here's the purpose, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate purpose. It's all there. All the same stuff that Peter's saying in verse 2. It, Paul is saying right here is the Second Thessalonians two thirteen. You've been chosen to be saved. You're, you experienced it. How you were sanctified, set apart by the Spirit. When did it happen? When you believed in the truth, which is the gospel that you heard preached. To what end? That I may share in the glory of being made like Christ in eternity. It's all there again. The same thing. Um, Paul writes to the Corinthians people with many struggles, a deep pagan background. He reminds them of what they were before. He says that, that thieves or the greedy or the drunkards or revilers, swindlers, none of these will ever inherit the kingdom of God and others. And then he says to them, he's writing to these Christians, he says, and such were some of you. You were that. You lived in that. Well, what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart. You were justified, yet declared not guilty in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how did that happen? By the Spirit of our God, you see. By the Spirit. So when is it that someone who has been chosen of God before the foundation of the world suddenly becomes an exile in his own home, sometimes an exile in his, his, his or her own family? 
an exile in your own land of birth, your own place of living your whole life. How is it that you suddenly become an exile? It's that God reaches down through the gospel and by the Spirit's power you are taken out, taken out and sanctified, consecrated to belong to Him. It is the work of the Spirit with the power of the gospel. Indeed, He will say to them again, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You are a people for His own possessions. There's a lot of implications there, isn't there? Your life is not your own. You were purchased with a price. You've been sanctified. You've been consecrated to belong to God. Um, so as we look at this, uh, we, we, we sometimes think about our own experience of this. And because the Christian life is a life full of ups and downs and maybe even suffering like they are experiencing or beginning to experience, Doubts begin to enter our minds whether we really belong to God. We are sanctified, we're told, by the Spirit. But you see, the ministry of the Spirit is not simply to pluck you out of the world and then place you in a spiritual family. He is the seal, the guarantee of that inheritance we read together. He indwells you. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that in the deepest and darkest times, what happens is, Romans eight sixteen, God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Indeed, it's okay. All will be well. You, you do belong to the Lord in heaven. And so the basis of our becoming elect exiles is the foreknowledge or forelove of God the Father, the means by which we suddenly become exiles on this earth and enter a whole other family is the sanctification by the Spirit, and you've heard how he does that through the word of truth, which is the gospel, by the faith he gives you in it. Now, to what end? What is the purpose of, of our becoming elect exiles on the earth? And that's that last prepositional phrase, for, for this purpose, or unto, unto this end, unto obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, I do want to say that this is the most difficult uh, phrase to really understand of the three. And there's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, it's been, you know, if you don't bring what you're already thinking in your mind and you're just going to study this, there's a lot of difficulty in translating this, and that's why some translations differ, and uh, they're just so different. And what is the reason behind it? There's lots of problems here, grammatically speaking. For example, it's not clear from the grammar uh, if Jesus Christ is connected to the blood or it's connected to the obedience. But the, the way it works out grammatically, it, it's just not clear whether it's which one it's really a part of or is it both? Can it be both? How could it be both? And so forth. Another thing that's not clear is if sprinkling refers to forgiveness, why does he start with obedience and then forgiveness, you see? Well, then will some say, well, because Peter later talks about obedience to the truth, so you might be talking about that initial obedience of the call of the gospel, and you obey. Uh, so maybe it's referring to that, but what could be the connection between these two? And there's other problems in there that I won't even go into, okay? Uh, so while scholars defer, uh, what I want to offer to you this morning is uh, that that which uh, a group of scholars have held, long held, but it was re, re, uh, reiterated in a book called The New Testament Use of the Old Testament. And Don Carson and other scholars take this view. And that is this, that there is a connection here. This combination between obedience and sprinkling with blood, which may have been strange to these Gentiles, was not strange to Peter, right? This combination of obedience and sprinkling with blood, and even the order, obedience, then sprinkling, uh, is an allusion to an Old Testament event that Peter undoubtedly would have know, known and was etched in his mind. And that event is this, Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8, and it was the confirmation of the Mosaic Covenant 
the establishment or the sealing of the old covenant, the, 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 the law and the Mosaic covenant. What took place at that time was that the blood of sacrificial bulls was brought to Moses, and this is before the tabernacle arrangement had all been done and the priests and so forth. It was brought to Moses, and Moses took some of that sacrificial blood and he sprinkled it on the altar, signifying forgiveness on the grounds of God's acceptance of a substitute. And we know that the ultimate substitute, of course, is, our, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what happened next is Moses then took the book of the covenant and he read it out loud to the people who then vowed, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. And then Moses took the remainder of the blood, there's obedience, he took the remainder of the blood and he sprinkled it on the people signifying not only the covering of their forgiveness, but also that this is a blood oath between them and God. He forgives. He saves through a substitute. You obey. But the last two parts of that was we obey, and then they were sprinkled with that blood. And that may be exactly why Peter puts it in this order here. What he's saying is the Spirit called you out of darkness when you heard the gospel, to what end? That you might obey that call of the gospel of Jesus Christ, submitting to him and then being covered simultaneously there with the cleansing blood of the covenant, you see. Only, there's a difference, you see. There is a difference because they said we will obey. And what happened? They didn't obey. <laughs> and why didn't they obey? Because the old covenant did not bring with it the guarantee of a transformation, a new birth to every member of the covenant because to be a member of the old covenant, you just needed to be a Jew, you see. But the new covenant in Christ, which that event was just a picture of, the new covenant of Christ brings about the obedience of faith that the old covenant was pointing to there. And so that is what is happening here. Peter is saying by this illusion that the New Testament people of God, like Israel, have been chosen by the Father. They've been set apart by the Spirit for the purpose of the obedience of faith to God and to be cleansed. Only it will take place in reality in every member of the New Covenant. Why is that? Because we are, are, are members of a better covenant, an eternal covenant an unchanging covenant, a covenant that brings about the writing of the law in our hearts and the transformation of our minds and our motives, you see. So I think this is what's taking place here. In other words, this is what Peter is alluding to by using these two words together in the order in which he brings them about. And so we remember both of them. When the Spirit sets you apart, when you believe the gospel, in our mind, we think of it this way, the sprinkling first, right? The cleansing of our sin, safe. But also, to what end? To obey the call of the gospel, to believe Christ, and continue to obey him. The obedience of faith, as Paul says. In fact, Paul described his ministry that way. Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.6, he says, I preach the gospel to Gentiles seeking to bring about the obedience of faith. Strange, we may not say it that way ourselves, right? As 21st century Christians, we preach the gospel in order to have people be saved. But Paul says, in order to bring about the obedience of faith, which is what God is seeking, that relationship with him. In Titus 2.14, another <clears throat> portion of scripture where the apostle, again, refers to, to this sort of combination. Why were we saved? To what end? to a new kind of obedience, a new life. Titus 2, uh, 14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You have been sanctified, you are God's possession, and he has equipped you in such a way that you can be zealous now for good works. I think of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no man may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. That is, we're his creation, his work of art, created in Christ Jesus 
for good works unto obedience, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, beloved, the sum of this all is that in a, someone has said, in a beautiful divine harmony between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in a beautiful divine harmony between the three persons of the Holy Trinity, your salvation was planned before the foundation of the, earth, of the world. Your salvation was accomplished by Christ on the cross. You are sprinkled with his blood. You're safe, you're secure, you're forgiven, enabled to believe him, and you experience this when you are sanctified or set apart from everyone else in this lost world by the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word of truth, which is the gospel. You have been gloriously saved from a pit. Salvation is God's rescue mission, which he alone accomplishes on our behalf. And we say, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. And that's what Paul's getting at when he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's what Peter's getting at when immediately he starts and says, you're chosen ones. You are elect exiles on the earth. Beloved, you need to know who you are to resist the ties of the world, to resist the pressures of the world, to become someone you're not. You need to know who you are and what God has made you in order to say no to what the world is pressuring you to think you ought to be. You belong to him. You know, there is a built-in perennial need in human beings to belong, to belong with someone somewhere because that's part of our identity. We were created for relationships because we are created in the image of God who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in an intimate relationship for eternity past. We were made to not be alone, made to live in relationships. And so there's this innate, built-in, perennial need to belong as part of identity. I get that. But where should you, a Christian, find that belonging? Huh? Where should you find that sense of, of identity that says, I belong, this is me, this is who I am? Where do you look for it? Where do you find that in this strange new world, this post-Christian culture and society in which we, we live, well, I'll tell you where you shouldn't find it. You don't find it by simply looking inward to yourself. And you don't find it by attempting to choose to be something God has not made you to be. You find your identity, Christian, again, in what God has made you to be, the relationship he's brought you into, and the destiny he has secured for you. And I know there are other components to a sense of belonging that are, are okay, meaning they can be healthy. They're part of a fuller human identity, not just our Christian identity. But I think too many Christians try to find their identity on those lesser shared horizontal commonalities. So it's like we could, we could have a sense of belonging if we share the same political ideologies. We can have a sense of belonging if we, if we share the same interests, hobbies, things we do outside, and so forth. We can find a sense of commonality and community uh, through shared vocations, our jobs, our careers, our education, or being parents, and so forth. We can find a sense of belonging through our commonality in, in, our, in our marital status, whether we're singles with other singles or married. And, and, and those, those things are part of it because that's part of being a human being and flourishing as a human being. But beloved, the greatest permanent, unchanging element of your identity is never on any of those. It is based upon who God has made you. You are his child, chosen for eternity, sanctified and cleansed 
secure forever, secured for an inheritance that lies ahead. That is a greater degree and element of your Christian identity than all the others, whatever they might be, as wholesome as they might be for you. So how you answer this question, who are you, says a whole lot about you. Some people post that, right, on their Facebook page or some other page where they define themselves. So-and-so, my name. What are you? An engineer. Uh, Something you do. Something you've accomplished. A family man, etc. You are an elect exile. Go wipe everything else and put that in there for a while. See what people think about you and say about you. An elect exile. A member of what? A member of a chosen race, a royal priest, a member of a holy nation. I am a person of God's own possession. That's your greatest identity. I think how you answer that question, who are you, what really comes into your mind is very, very important about you. How we see ourselves has far-reaching implications because people live according to how they see themselves. Too many Christians are, 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 are seeing themselves through the lens of the culture rather than what, how God views them. What does the culture say? What is the lens of the culture? The culture says, especially to our young people, you're too skinny, you're too large, you're too rich, you're too poor, you're privileged, you're too conservative, you're old-fashioned, you're insignificant, you're out of touch, ordinary, Weak, what have you, insignificant. The culture, I remind you, is a product of human beings. And the vast majority of human beings in our culture are utterly lost. And so these are pressures that you need to resist. The longer you listen to those voices, and I speak especially to the younger crowd who maybe gets more of this coming at them. The longer you listen to these voices, the more you start believing them. The more you start believing them rather than listening to God and what He says about you. And these narratives, these voices, they are bullies. They are bullies pushing you into finding your identity into something that God has not made you. You think about the amount of pressure that's been pressed upon our, some of our young people in this society, the numbers of young people who have committed suicide as a result of being pressed, bullied online because they didn't, quote, live up to what they were supposed to be living up to, which, once again, is viewing yourself through the lens of the culture. That number of suicides has been climbing incredibly. Listen to the Lord. Listen to God, your maker, your creator, and what he has to say about you. If you're a Christian, listen to what he has to say about you as your redeemer, as your savior. Think about yourself, how he views you, not how the culture views you. What does he say about you? That's what's more important. And no doubt, I understand that someone might say, well, I'm not sure what to think about that, Tony, because I'm not sure I'm a Christian yet. I'm not sure I'm a believer. I'm not sure I, I, I belong to Christ. So how can, I, how can I view myself in the way that you're saying, you know? Well, listen, if you're not yet a Christian, you, you still have identity that comes from your maker. Not yet your redeemer, maybe, but he is your creator. You know what scripture says? It says that you are an image bearer. You are created in the image of God. And that may be warped in your heart because you have fallen into sin like all of us, but you're still, you have tremendous value. Every human life is important and valuable. Why? Because you were made in the image of the Creator. And whatever your appearance, whatever the world says about you, you know what God says about you as your Creator? He says this, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what you are. You came out just the way God wanted you to come out. Don't listen to the culture. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then also, you can also share the identity that every Christian shares 
Because you might say to yourself, listen, I just don't know. I don't know that I'm chosen. You say that God has chosen. You know, the question, uh, that question is never posed in the Bible to anybody. Are you the chosen one? No, God says very simply to you. That's a mystery you don't understand. Here's what he says to you. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. That's it. So the question to you is, why don't you seek him? <laughs> why don't you get started? Seek God. Go to him. Pray to him. Believe he's sincere. If you seek me, you'll find me. I want to finish with a word to believers again one last time about your identity. That the relationship with God that he has brought you into is probably the most important thing about you. The problem is we forget and we lose sight of the fact that I'm loved by the Father, loved by the Son, loved by the Spirit. And life itself has a way of pressing on you the difficulties and so forth that we face. Don Moen, he's a songwriter, a Christian songwriter, he tells a story of how he came to write that simple worship song, uh, He Knows My Name. Some of you know that. And the story reminds me of my dad's last days in the memory care facility. Don Moen says this is how he wrote the, the song, He Knows My Name. He says he was visiting an elderly care facility. He was sharing stories, reading the Bible, going from room to room and singing songs to the people who were in the care facility and he came to this one room uh, where there was this man who was an old man he was just scrunched over and he couldn't move or say anything he was just scrunched over like that and above his bed it said Mr. No Name Mr. No Name all the tenants that he had visited already all had their name above their beds but his bed said Mr. No Name. It reminded me of my dad because uh, at, at the memory care facility where he was, they, they would place the uh, tenant's name outside the door, and you this little slip thing you put in their name. And for months, for months after he was there, they hadn't put his name there yet. And I was starting to get aggravated by it. Why don't you put his name up? He's forgetting who he is. So we put up pictures of his bulldozers in his room and we put up pictures of the family. We were waiting for that. I was waiting for them to put his name on his door before he forgets that as well. Well, the story goes on with Don Moen. He asked the caregiver who was walking around with him, he says, don't you guys know his name? And she said, no, we, we found him on the street. And we, we don't even know what language he speaks. We can't understand him. We don't know how to communicate with him. Again, this takes me back to this moment with my dad when he's losing that sense of identity and, and he, he fell and he was taken to the ER room and there in the ER room, evidently, he starts speaking this mixed mesh of Italian, Spanish, and a few words of English because when we call them and speak to them, they asked us the question, what language does he speak? <laughs> we think we're hearing Italian, but then we think we're hearing Spanish, and once in a while, there's an English word that pops out. He was losing his sense of who he is and couldn't even represent himself. Well, the story goes on with Don Moen. He says when he heard that, he took this man's hand, and he didn't even know if the man could understand him, right? But he said to him in English, he said, Sir, nobody knows your name here, but I know someone who does know your name. God knows your name. And that was the inspiration for the song. He knows my name. Christian, you're known by God, foreloved. He has known you before the foundation of the world. He has known you in your mother's womb. 
And he knows you now. He knows your past because he chose you in the past. He knows your present because, lo, he's with you always, even to the end of the age. And he knows your future because he has scripted it. It's an inheritance that lies ahead for you. So we're going to sing this song in a few moments. I'm going to pray for our offering first. I'm going to read the lyrics to you for those of you who don't know it. It goes like this. I have a maker. He formed my heart. Before even time began, my life was in his hand. I have a father. He calls me his own. He'll never leave me, no matter where I go. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. You need to believe that every day.